we are wrapping up our oh all right we are wrapping up our series on exile <laughs> and lessons that we learn from the exile and so this morning we are tackling Daniel 7 and uh, a couple months ago when I start laying out sermon series, I thought this will be a great way to wrap everything up uh, until I got to this week and really start digging into Daniel chapter 7. And I thought, what did you do? <laughs> now, I want to take a look at uh, this text. Often pastors, first six chapters of Daniel, sure, yep, we'll go there. Uh, the last... Um, Five chapters, uh, seven to seven to twelve. Anyway, um, we generally don't want to touch too much. As we come uh, this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, uh, be pleasing to you this morning. Speak through me or despite me, in Jesus' name, Amen. We've been digging deep into the world of the exiles, looking at the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, looking at the story of Daniel. We read the letter, uh, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. We looked briefly at the story of Esther and how we can apply these stories as the church in the United States, the church in the West, finds itself entering into a new kind of exile surrounded by a culture that is very different than what many of you were raised in, um, growing up or, or, or being in a place that doesn't have a basic understanding of the story of Scripture, of who Jesus is, of what it means to be rescued and saved and redeemed. And these are all kinds of church Christian words that a lot of people don't have a basic understanding of. As we're, this morning we're going to be digging uh, into the theology of the exiles as well. So strap in, things could get a little bumpy this morning. I was wrestling with the text, with interpretation and, and how to present it. You know, when we start to get into the imagery of Daniel, into these visions and these beasts and, and things happening, and certainly when we get into Revelation, uh, people st start to get all kinds of different ideas, and, and some of those ideas are really goofy, and I will confess that I left my timelines at home this morning, so I'm not giving you a timeline of how it's all going to work out this morning. So we need to do some teaching before we do some preaching. Daniel 7 represents a shift in the book of Daniel. Up until now, the book has been written in Hebrew, but Daniel 7, it shifts into Aramaic, which for us, it's all in English, so it doesn't seem like a big difference. Up until now, the story has been largely court tales, Daniel's experiences. There are stories of what's happening between the exiles, between Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the court, between these different kings, and how they're interacting, how they're trying to support these, these kings, these, these foreign emperors, these conquering kings, but how they're also remaining distinct, different, how they continue to pray and worship God alone. And now we move into 
a series of visions and dreams. The book changes into an apocalyptic book, which when we hear that apocalyptic book, we have all kinds of movies that come to mind of you know, the world just about to end either through a meteor or World War III or, or something like that. But in the ancient world, apocalyptic literature was a, a genre of literature. There were all kinds of people that were writing in terms of beasts and visions and, and, and writing to critique what was happening in their own world. Not entirely different from some of the classical science fiction books like 1984 or Fahrenheit 451, where images and names are representative of known realities and they critique the present, and they cast it as a future utopia or dystopia. We often want to figure out exactly who and what these beasts that occur in Daniel chapter 7 are all about. As we read through the text, we are introduced to a great sea, and out of the sea comes a lion with wings of an eagle. And then emerges a bear with ribs or tusks. It depends on which translation of the Bible you're reading. In its mouth. And then a beast that is like a leopard with four wings. And then there emerges this terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong fourth beast. And, and Daniel doesn't even have uh, uh, animals to really compare it to. It's a, a beast of its own kind with iron teeth and, and all of these horns. And then this other horn that emerges in it knocks out three other horns, and then it starts talking. So obviously we're not talking about real animals or a ten-horned unicorn type thing. There's something else happening here. There are these images taking place. As I was studying this passage, I was coming across all kinds of interpretations for the, the beasts of Daniel that he sees emerging from the sea. And the sea is representative of, uh, for, for the people in the ancient Near East, the sea represented chaos, this, this moving thing that they couldn't control. It was, it was this movement that they just feared sometimes. We see God's spirit hovering over the deep in Genesis 1, and God brings creation. He creates order. He creates beauty out of the chaos. Looking at some of these interpretations of these beasts gets a little interesting. Jerome in the 300s, he was an ancient church father, understood Daniel's vision to include Babylon. We've read about Babylon in the book of Daniel. The kingdom of Media and Persia. He understood the leopard to be Alexander the Great and Greece. And then he understood the last beast to be Rome that comes and is conquering and, and crushing and demolishing. And it's during that time that a new kind of king emerges. Some historians would suggest that Greece is that fourth beast 
and Alexander the Great, it represents this different kind of kingdom. Under Babylon and and Media and, and Persia, they were largely administrative empires. They came in and they conquered and then they kind of spread everyone around and they allowed you to worship your own God, but but you had to do it apart from Jerusalem or apart from where you had been kicked out of. But it was kind of a melding pot of all these different empires. Well, Alexander the Great comes, and when he conquers, he enforces his culture and his religion on the people. And following Alexander the Great, there were all these kingdoms or or kings and generals fighting for control of his empire. And one of those eventually emerges. His name is Antiochus IV. He is so proud of himself, so uh, thrilled with himself after he kills off several other rival kings that he gives himself the name Epiphanes, the manifestation of God. And in Jerusalem, he comes and he erects a statue of Zeus and he slaughters a whole bunch of pigs to defile the Jewish temple. What better way than to kill a non-kosher animal in the middle of the temple. So some have understood this fourth beast to be Greece. At other times in church history, the beasts have been representative of Rome, uh, of the Pope. It was popular with Reformation-era Protestants to understand that little horn coming up as the Pope. I came across all kinds of interesting, wild interpretations this week. Uh, One suggested that absolutely George Washington is the lion with the eagle's wings. And there was a whole bunch of um, theory that they provided with that, and it was interesting, to say the least. I thought Daniel must have been really looking ahead. Throughout history, all kinds of interpretations have been suggested. And people have developed all kinds of timelines based on Daniel, trying to figure out exactly who these beasts are and exactly what's happening in the world around us and how it all matches up somehow. It's interesting to me that Jesus talks about the end. Jesus talks about a return and coming back. And the disciples come and they ask, when's this going to happen? And what is Jesus' response? I don't know. Only the Father knows. If Jesus didn't provide a timeline, I'm not giving you a timeline. I can't take that place. Certainly, if Jesus doesn't know, I'm not going to figure it out either. Rather, these beastly empires emerge from a chaotic sea They emerge with symbols of power and strength, ready to kill and destroy. They become violent. They coerce and they grab for power. The little horn is representative of a ruler that comes and is kicking everybody else out, trying to get rid of rival kings so that he can have real power over other people. But in the middle of Daniel's vision. One like a human being is what some translations say. Other translations say the Son of Man comes from heaven to establish 
a different kind of kingdom. One where everyone is coming and, and worshiping and bowing down and being a part of this kingdom. In another apocalyptic book, the book of Revelation, John again uses beastly imagery and to describe Rome and, and other kingdoms, but he compares that with the kingdom of the slaughtered lamb who comes and conquers through shedding his own blood rather than the blood of his enemies. This is an exercise in compare and contrast. We have these beasts full of power and, and strength as we understand them, as the world understands them coming with speed and ferocity, ready to, to kill and maim and destroy. They come from the chaotic sea. And then one comes from heaven. A different kind of kingdom. We're meant to have hope that the beastly kingdoms, those that emerge from the chaos to conquer and destroy in violence, are not kingdoms with real power. Rather, we can have hope that a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of king will come and now has come. When we move then into the New Testament, Jesus starts taking this title, these, these words from Daniel. And using them, the Son of Man. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And what's the number one topic that Jesus talks about? It's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He's come to establish a new and different kind of kingdom. Not one that rules through dominating and, and, and coercion and, and destroying comes by Jesus dying on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Before Jesus' crucifixion, he's questioned by Pilate. And Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? Are you really a king? And Jesus says, if I were that kind of king, my, my followers would come and fight for me. They would do what empire does. They would take up their, their swords and their spears and they would march and they would rebel and they would fight and they would dominate. But that's not the kind of kingdom. My kingdom is from a different place. So we are called to have hope. Hope. Daniel's vision gives us hope. The hope that the Jewish people had for the Messiah was that there would come a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of king. And Jesus comes and introduces that new kind of kingdom. We see throughout Scripture that earthly government, the, the empires and the kingdoms of the world, some more noble, lions and eagles' wings, some more beastly beyond imagining, are known and ordered by God. And God somehow accomplishes His purposes no matter what kind of beast is ruling. 
he accomplishes his purposes sometimes through or in spite of these kingdoms. These empires and kingdoms help to maintain some kind of order in a rebellious world. They make the best out of a bad situation, but ultimately these kingdoms and empires, the lions, the bears, the leopards, the beasts, the dragons, and whatever else will come to an end. And one like the the Son of Man, coming like a slaughtered lamb, will assume the throne. The church is then called to live as citizens of a kingdom already begun but yet to be fully realized. We're called to live out an alternative community in the middle of exile, in the middle of beastly empires around us. You and I in the church are called to live out an alternative community. I was talking to somebody this week that was watching the news and trying to figure out where all this conflict and, and wars and rumors of wars and all that, where's all this going? And he was talking about politics and right versus left and liberal and conservative and all those words and everything. And people going towards the ends of their spectrums and, and just fighting and arguing and all this stuff. And I wonder in the church, do we tell a different kind of story? Because you and I are called to live out an alternative kind of kingdom. We've talked throughout this series of this two-sided nature of living out the kingdom of God now in the midst of exile, in the midst of these beastly empires. On one hand, we are called to seek the peace and the prosperity of the place that God has sent us, called to seek the welfare of those around us, ministering to the needs of of the vulnerable, the broken down, the exhausted, those in need of real rescue. And on the other hand, when you serve a different kind of king in a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of ethic and a different kind of victory, well, it makes you seem different. And the empires don't always like different. Clarence Jordan defined faith this way. He said, faith is not belief in spite of evidence, but a life in scorn of consequences. What he's talking about is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who say, we believe God can save us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know that he is still God and we will still only bow and worship him. It's a story of Daniel who knows full well the consequences of continuing to pray only to God and yet he goes back, he opens his windows, he faces Jerusalem, he faces God and he prays to Yahweh knowing that it could result in facing lions. And Esther, she fasts, she prays and then she risks and goes before the king and she says, if I perish, I perish. Life in scorn of the consequences. I hope through this series that you've heard that we are called to be ambassadors, citizens of a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God, to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to live it out.
we close our worship this morning, I invite you to stand and turn in your blue hymnal to number 106.